So we're looking to the Holy Spirit tonight to take the word that you've shown me, the word that you have breathed, and to breathe it into our hearts, that we may have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what the Holy Spirit has for us tonight. And for this we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. And amen. Let's try that again. Amen. 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 That's better. Praise God. Well, thank you again, D2L. You did a great job. And we really appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's good to have you ministering up here. And you do minister. Praise the Lord. Those of you that are here in present, I can't quite see you, but some of you, yeah, now I can see more of you. Those of you that are watching online, we're so grateful that you're here tonight. I was thinking as I was preparing and coming in today, this is um, what we were talking about last week and this week and really for a while now. This is not kindergarten. This is, this is not... This is not uh, first grade or even elementary school stuff. This is high school and college and even some graduate school work. So I applaud you for coming. I applaud you for watching online because you're here because you love God and you really want, sincerely want to grow. And I know that because of that, God will meet us, meet us where we are. Well, last week we began a series. It's really just two messages as far as I know. Um, uh, and the, the title is Why. And I uh, shared with you last week that I got this title. I get it from different sources. And um, last week I was asked what's the title, and I really hadn't even thought of the message yet. And I was, felt kind of pressured, so I said, oh, I just put a question mark. And then as I began to think about a question mark, I realized why. And, and it fit in with some things that God's been dealing with me about. And the why speaks of why am I going through what I'm going through? Why did this happen? What, what, the the age-old question, and the Bible talks a lot about it, why do bad things happen to good people? And last week we looked at the, the, the best example of that of all is the book of Job. And we went back and we looked at the book of Job and we saw that Job was a righteous man. We'll read a little bit about, about tonight. By God, God said he was a, a, a righteous man and that he turned away from evil. And then Satan comes to challenge Job and says, basically, does Job just serve you because of what you do for him? Again, we'll read some of those scriptures tonight. And then the next thing you know, Job goes through the worst couple of days you can ever imagine. And one day, he loses his children. He's got seven sons and three daughters. He loses them. He loses his livestock. He loses his house. He loses everything but his wife. And then the next day, he loses his health, and his body breaks out in these terrible boils from the top of his head to the tip of his toes. Now, any kind of sickness and disease is never fun, but if you're experiencing pain or you're experiencing these terrible boils and pain in his flesh all over his body, and he was in such agony that when his four so-called friends show up, or three so-called friends showed up, uh, they just sat and kept their mouth shut, just mourned with him for a week. And then they began a series of discussions where they were debating why this happened to Job. And we looked at kind of a summary of those. I don't want to take the time to go through all of those. But they're, they're speculating. Why did this happen? And, and, and the real question, what it, what it confronts us with is, is, is what is God like if people get, get or do, are living right and yet they suffer? It just doesn't seem like justice is 
being served, and therefore we can question, is God just? So the issues that are raised by this book, and it appears in other places in the Bible, but really in this book, the issue that's raised is, is ultimately confronts us, can we really, what is God really like if he would allow or cause Job to go through this losing virtually everything in his life? And so we went through some of that, and we talked about how each of his friends came up with why this happened and why that happened. And then there was a young man, Elihu, stood up and kind of spoke for God. And then near the end, God speaks up. And I'm just going to summarize a little bit of it. It's in these notes. I did find, we did finally get last week's and this week's notes posted. I apologize, apologize for that. Um, so, but from between chapters 3 and 37, there's a debate about why all this happened to him. And, of course, this is man's idea of why it happened. Chapter 38 through 40, God begins to answer. And the significant thing to me out of this whole book is that with all this debate about why this happened to God, when, Joe, when God shows up, he never answers why. Because to God, why is not the question. And God's way of responding to Job is to say that Job, remind Job of who God is. Because what we're going to look at tonight is, is, although God didn't answer why, although why was the wrong question, there is a reason why Job goes through the, went through this. There is a reason why we go through suffering. There is a reason and there is a purpose to it. And this is why I said this is high school and graduate school stuff tonight. It's not the stuff that gets you jumping up and down and running around church and screaming and yelling, but it will set you free as we see really the love of God through all of this. So we're going to look at, it, at what God, Job was going through. And although the why is not always for us to know, we are to know what God is, that God is always working in us. One of the common scriptures that's quoted when people are going through trouble is Roman, Romans 8, 28, and 29, which says, we know that all things, are, that all things work for good, and, and a lot of people just stop there. But the rest of that verse is all things work for good for those who know God, who love God and who are called according to his purpose. But the next verse says what the purpose is. And the purpose is that we be conformed to the image of God. So God loves us, but God is always working with us, with his children, to refine us, to bring out of us, to form us into the image of Christ. Because Romans 8 goes on to say that for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There it is. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So if you go back to verse 28, it says, For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't stop there, because God doesn't cause everything to work together for good. But God will take what you're going through and work it for good, for the good is his purpose, not what we think is good. For good for those who love God are called according to his purpose. The next verse tells you what his purpose is. So the purpose for what we go through is that for whom he foreknew, he predestined, or that just means he planned ahead of time, that we would be conformed to the image of his son, that he might, Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. Elsewhere, Paul says, For I labor among you in prayer that until Christ is formed in you. 
Second, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and on, says, For the, the gifts of the ministry are given for the edifying of the saints to the building up of the body of Christ until we all come to the image of the fullest of the image of Christ. So God is at work in you to form Christ in you. He deposited the image of Christ in you when you were born again, but just because that image is in you doesn't mean you're living it out. And we saw a lot of that as we went through renewing the mind. And all you have to do is look at your life probably today and you realize, I'm not exactly acting like Christ all the time, thinking like him or speaking like him, but he is in me. So God's working in you. God is at work in you, Philippians 2 says, both to will and to do his good pleasure. He's working in you to bring out the fullness of the image of Christ. In, in John chapter 15, that's called the fruit. Galatians 5 is called the, the fruit of the Spirit. So what I want to get into tonight, and this may shock you a little bit, but God does test us. But he doesn't test us to fail us. He doesn't test us to see whether we're going to fail. He tests us in order to bring out what he already knows is in us, but we don't know is in us. And it's what's in our heart, ultimately, that's separating us from him, from the experience of him, and separating the fruit that he wants to bring out of us. And there are a number of things we're going to look at tonight about that. So let's go to James chapter 1. Now, there's, there's some people in the faith circles, and we were trained in the faith circles, that will basically teach you God doesn't, you know, God doesn't test you, but the Bible says God does test you. But we're going we're gonna to refine this a little bit, and then we're going to look at some examples. James 1, verse 2. My brethren, so he's talking to Christians, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That word means tests, difficulties. Count it all joy. I think the Amplified says it's the equivalent of throwing a party. Now, it doesn't say you feel all joy. It says you're to count it all joy, consider it all joy. So when you're going through a trial and a test, this is the mindset you should have. In, 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 this was James obviously wrote this. Uh, Paul wrote it in several places. In, in Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about this process. He says, you know, we glory in the grace of God, but I learned to glory in tribulation, trouble, because I've understand this. Tribulation produces in me perseverance, persisting, not quitting, strength. And perseverance produces proven character, tested character. And proven, tested character produces hope. The hope in the New Testament, that word doesn't mean what we typically mean by it. I sure hope we're going to get it. No, it means a steadfast, confident expectation. So God wants to draw out of us and train us to have some strength in us, strength that can go through difficult times. And you can't learn that in a classroom. We were reading a devotion this morning. Uh, It's a book by, um, I almost quoted large parts of it tonight, but I decided to spare you, by A.B.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. If you've never read that, you need to read it, especially if you're a Wednesday night crowd. If you're high school and first year college, you need, to, you need to read this book. And he talks about the, learning to come to the end of self. Because what separates us from the experience of God's presence isn't God. 
His side of it was removed at the cross. Romans, I mean, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about the veil has been torn. From God's side, the veil that separates us from the presence of God has been torn in the flesh of Christ. The veil that still remains that, that hides his presence from us is the veil that covers our heart, and that's our own flesh. And it's rooted in self. And the statement in there that is so powerful, he says, Self is never defeated by teaching and instruction. He says that would be like trying to get leprosy out of you by instruction about leprosy. You need to know what the process is, but it's only an experience you can go through the Holy Spirit working in you to deliver you from the power of self. And this is what God is ultimately after. So put James back up there again. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing something, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So one of the things that's tested when we're going through our trials and difficulties is our faith. Now when God tests us, again, God's not testing us because he doesn't know what's in us. He's testing us so we discover what's in us. A couple of months ago, I mean, I have been confessing things about healing for several years now. And one of the things I confessed over myself almost every day was that COVID has no right to live in my body. And then in the beginning of May, we both tested positive. And I went into a pity party. I got mad at God because I've been confessing this all this time. And here I got COVID. And once I, he let me calm down. He let me run out of the pity party until I went to him. Now, see, why is okay to ask when you're asking, I want to learn something? Why is not okay to ask when you're basically accusing God, why did this happen to me? In other words, underneath you, you say, this isn't fair. And so when I calmed down and I went back to God and I said, all right, I, the moment I, even what I just said, I could hear it. I was telling God what I had done. Lord, I have confessed this faithfully for two years. So my trust was in what I was doing, not in God's word. And what God was saying is you thought your face was somewhere because of what you were doing, and what that COVID revealed to you is your faith wasn't where you thought it was. So now what do I do with that? I can get mad at God, but I just, okay, I've got to learn. Now I've got to learn from this. Where am I? I've got to be open to allow God's spirit to begin to speak to me. So it's a testing often of your faith. And if you'll allow, if you'll do that, faith will produce patience. Go on. But let patience have its perfect work. So standing still and in this trial will produce a work in you that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. Now, perfect there doesn't mean that you'll never make a mistake, that you'll never say a wrong thing. It means, the, it means the fullness of your maturity, and it's the fullness of your maturity into the image of Christ. And so this trial, this testing of your faith, the trials you're going through, God wants to use it to reveal to you where you really are, because only when we face where we really are can God begin to meet us there and help us. I've taught for years. God will come to where, can only come to where you are, not where you think you are or pretend you are. Yeah. 
So if you think you're somewhere and you're not there, God's not going to come to where you think you are. He's going to meet you where you are, and he's not going to come to where you pretend you are. He's going to come to where you really are. So the beginning of God's really able to work in you is for you to allow God to reveal to you where you really are in whatever this issue is, whatever this issue is that you're going to. Let's go over to verse 12 and, and go on with this idea. And blessed is the man who endures temptation. This is the trust and trial. We'll look at it a little bit later on. What you do in the difficulty, what you do in the testing, determines a whole lot. Uh, Joyce Myers had this, used to have this wonderful teaching about, you know, God was training Israel in the wilderness and they didn't learn the lesson. So every time they didn't listen, they would have to go around the mountain again. And so the question is, how many times do we have to go through this before we're finally going to realize, I need to learn whatever God's trying to teach me or see whatever God wants to be seen, me to see. Blessed is a man who endures the temptation, not runs away from it, not avoids it, not hides it. For when he's been approved, that word approved means qualified. That mean, the word actually means pass a test. So when you've been, he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has prepared for those who love him. Next verse. Let no one say when he's tempted or tested that I'm being tested by God. Now, go on with this thought. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. I thought you just said God tests us. Just bear me out. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And I was reading that yesterday and saying, God, wait a minute. I'm, I'm teaching them that you test us. And now you just say that you don't. But that word also means tempt. See, God doesn't produce in you something that's wrong. God wants to reveal to you what's down inside. And what he, James is saying here, what tempts us is we're drawn away by our own desires and in tusks. So what the pressure is intended to reveal is where your desires are, what's really going on down in your heart, because those are the things that lead you off track and get you in trouble. And this is what God wants us to see. And we'll see later on. He wants us to see this because he loves us. Keep going. So that when desire has conceived, this is the desire in your heart, this is the desire that's wrong, it bursts in, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Verse 16, but do not be deceived, my brethren, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So God only gives good gifts and comes down from the Father of lights from whom there's no various nor shadow of turning. The next verse. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that he might, we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. In other words, we would be formed into the image of Christ. John chapter 15, let's look at another example of this. This is one of my favorite sections of scripture. Jesus said, I am the true vine. You know, what's going on here is Jesus is revealing to them the nature of their relationship going forward. I was thinking of this the other day when, when, uh, when Pastor Chris was preaching. Uh, we talk about being Christ followers, and he called his disciples to follow him once they left their fishing nets. But at this point, he's going to change the nature of their relationship. He's no longer going to call them to follow him. He's going to call them to be in him and for him to be in them. 
Now I'm not gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take a whole message sometime and, and break that down, or somehow I'll do it. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Because what he's going to go on to say, and I'm the vine and your branches, and if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But look at what he says before that. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, my father takes away. Another meaning of that word in Greek is lifts up. And every branch that bears fruit, I'm assuming that's us, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, my mother was a professional horticulturist. She knew the Latin names for every plant. And, and, and she had a green thumb, purple thumb. She could grow anything anywhere, and she really knew what she was doing. I inherited a black thumb. <laughs> I could kill any plant. <laughs> I did not inherit that gift from my mother. And the first house we lived in was outside of Boston. I was a lawyer in Boston. And we lived in a small corner lot, and we had this hedge that was about this high. And those of you who went to school of ministry, this is the hedge that Mandy used to slip between. And then my mother came to visit us one day, and uh, she, we got like, up in the morning, and I went to work. And when I came home, the hedge had been cut down like this. I went in the house, I said, I knew Anita hadn't done it. I said, what did you do? You destroyed our hedge. She said, no, 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 no. It was thinning out. I, you, I, it needed me to do that. I said, you're kidding me. There's nothing left of it. She says, you wait in a year and watch what happens. And she was absolutely right because what happened is it came back in the next year and grew much thicker and much fuller. Why? What well, did she understand that I didn't understand? Because there's only so much energy, life, in that plant. There's so much energy in that vine. And it, it, it needs to be concentrated in branches that are going to produce healthy fruit. But what happens is, I'm, we're learning because we've got some flowers in our, on our back porch, and I find to learn that when the buds begin to fade, you're supposed to pluck them off. Why? Because that branch, that stem, is still drawing nutrients out of the ground that are feeding dead fruit now. So what you do is you cut off some of the branches. You cut it back so that it will bear more fruit. But there's something about the cutting. Now, the plant doesn't have feelings, I'm sure. But when you cut something, it's going to bleed. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to, and when it cuts us, it hurts. And so pruning is painful because it's God cutting at something down in our heart that we're holding on to. Maybe our identity's tied to it. Maybe we just have an emotional attachment to it. And maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's just, or ultimately, and this is what God's dealing with me about, ultimately it's your will he's after. So I'm willing to trade all kinds of things, <laughs> make all kinds of deals, but what God's after ultimately is our will fully submitted to obey him without questioning. That's ultimately, but isn't that the image of Christ? Didn't Jesus come to the place where he said, I only say what my father says? In other words, I don't have my own opinions. I only say, I keep my mouth shut until I know what my father would say. And I only do what I see my father do. 
That's ultimately the image of Christ that he can bear fruit through. So here we see because God wants us to produce fruit, he wants us to produce, he will prune us. But the pruning is for the purpose of cutting away things that are, that are taking life away from you, distractions. I heard a preacher a few weeks ago say it this way. Satan's weapon, Satan's tool, Satan's purpose in everything he does to us is to distract our heart's devotion from Christ. And he'll use good things and he'll use bad things, anything to water down, anything to distract, anything to dilute our devotion, our pure devotion to Christ. And so, here again, we see that God prunes. He doesn't test us with evil, but he tests us to expose what's really in our heart. Pruning hurts, but it produces fruit. So let's go look at this this now in, in terms of Job. Let's go to Job chapter 1, verse 8. We looked at some of this before, but we're going to read through some of this now. So this is now the beginning of the story of Job, and it's a scene into heaven. Again, this is a play. So whether this is actually what happens in heaven or not, I don't know, but the Spirit of God is showing us a dynamic that's going on. So what's happened is Satan has appeared before God along with, other, with angels, and the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? It's almost like he's bragging on him. That, he, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns or avoids evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, notice he answers God with a question, just like he starts with Eve with a question. Does Job fear God for nothing? Notice he's dealing with the motives of Job. Does Job fear you for nothing? Is he, is he upright? Is he, is he righteous? Is he avoiding evil for no reason at all? Keep going. And this is why. This is what, jo- this is what, this is what Job is, uh, uh, Satan is accusing Job of. You've made a hedge around him. In other words, you're protecting him. So he's serving you because you protect him. And around his household, and around all that he has on every side. Not only that, you bless the work of his hands. So he's accusing Job. He said, Job serves you. He lives right before you. He avoids evil. What? Because of what you do for him. It's not because he loves you. It's because of what you do for him. You protect him. You're the one that's blessed the work of his hands, so that if we read elsewhere, he was one of the richest men on the earth at the time. And his possessions have increased in the land. Keep going. Now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and surely he will curse you to his face. In other words, you'll find out what's really down inside of Job, what his motives are. Keep going. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay your hands on his person. And that could mean... Two different things that I read it. One could be God saying, look, he's already in your hands. Because if you read further, you see how afraid Job was. When this happens to his family, he says, the thing I feared most has come upon me. Fear is the, is the opposite side of the spiritual force of faith. Fear releases Satan to do things in our lives. 
So it may be that God is saying, look, he's already exposed himself to you. Or it may be that God is saying, all right, test him, find out what's there. So Satan went forth from the presence of God. Okay. So now what happens is there's a terrible accident. All of his children are killed having a party in one of their son's houses. All of his uh, animals destroy his sheep. He virtually loses everything except his wife, which that's a different matter, um, or his health. Now what happens is um, uh, in chapter 2, Satan comes back and tests him again. And now he says, uh, he, he said, he basically challenges God to afflict Satan's, uh, Job's, Job's body. So let's go to, uh, I did 1 verse 20, right? Let's go to chapter 1, verse 20. I'm sorry, I skipped something. So after Job has lost everything, this is where Job is right now. So Job arose, tore his clothes, shaved his head. These are all signs of mourning. And fell on the ground and worshipped. Go ahead. And this is, see, Job, Job's now under this tremendous pressure, but Job is still holding on to what he believes is right. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return from there. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that doesn't mean the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's how Job is seeing it. But at this point, Job is not cursing God. Job is basically saying at this point, who am I to question what God does? Now the pressure gets greater on him. In chapter 2, Satan comes back and says, well... All right. He says, but what if you afflict his body? And God again says, he's in your hands, only don't destroy him. And now Satan afflicts him with these terrible terrible boils. And now we see the pressure beginning to build up, the pressure of this trial he's going through beginning to build up, and it's pressure on his flesh. Satan gets at us through pressure on our flesh. So let's go, to, let's go to chapter 9 now, verse 32. So now he's been several days in this agony that he's going through. And now we're going to see under this extreme pressure things that are in his heart that Job never saw before, would never have dreamed were in there, are now going to begin to come out under pressure. There's an old expression, I don't know how accurate it is, that... that and I, this may not be true, but it works with this example, that the only way to tell whether a grape is, has seeds in it or not is to squeeze it and find out what comes out. And that's basically what's happening to Job. So now Job, we talked a little bit about this week, Job's now frustrated because what Job is upset now is Job is, well, I'll read through it and we'll go back and explain what it means. For Job is now complaining, talking about God, but he's not a man as I am, that I may answer him, or that we should go to court together. Next verse. Nor is there a mediator between us who may lay hold his hand on both of us. So, now go back to verse 32. Look what he's saying here. His complaint is, if I, and we've talked about this last week, if this were a man that had done this to me, I could take him to court and I could, before a judge, register my complaint and he would have to answer for why this has happened to me. So you take someone to court 
because an injustice has been done to you. Something's been done to you that breaks what is right or what is just or what is legal, and in court, theoretically, you have redress, you have compensation, and then you have a judge that decides between you as which one of you is right or wrong. So now what Job's, Job's attitude under pressure is coming out, because what Job is saying by this is that I've not been treated fairly, and God's not treated me fairly, because I'm a righteous man, and what did I do to deserve this? And I can't get God into court where he's going to have to answer for what's happened to me. So what's in him is he believes that he's been treated unjustly and he believes that he's entitled to an answer from God and he's mad because it's God and he can't force him to answer. There's a term for this in the Bible. It's called self-righteous. He's entitled to something because of his own righteousness that he's not getting. It's kind of like when I had an attitude, but I thought I made all these confessions, I did all these right things, and I still got COVID. How come? I did what was right, and I still got a result I wasn't expecting. How come? And that's what Job is saying. But see, God had to show me what was wrong in my heart before he would give me an answer. And God has to show Job what's wrong in his heart. But I want you to see... This would never come out of Job just sitting around talking, praying, reading his Bible. This would only come out in Job by actually going through something where all of the excuses, all the images of himself, all the things he'd done wrong are now stripped away and all that's left is he and God. And then God talks to him and reminds him of who God really is. And we went through that in some detail last week. Now he's complaining that he's not being treated justly. If his opponent were a man, he could take him to court, but because it's God, there's no one to mediate between them. His inner attitude is that he has rights and God's not respecting them. And this is the essence of self-righteousness. This has been buried in his heart and would have not come out without the pressure. Now we're going to go to Job 42. We're going to skip everything because we talked a lot about that last week. And we're going to see where he ends up once God confronts him, not with why it happened, but what reminds him of who God really is. Job's finally broken. And he says, I had in the past have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I see who you really are. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Actually, in chapter 40, when he starts to break, he's still trying to justify himself. He's still trying to hold on to a little bit of his dignity. And then God comes back with some more questions. Where were you when I did this? Can you do this? Basically reminding him who God is and who he is. Therefore, now I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Is there another verse? So what's happened now is he's really now begun to see God for who God is and he's begun to see himself for who he is. There's a process God has to take us through that you don't hear a lot about in church, especially in 
the faith circles that we've kind of grown up in and this church was established in. Martin Luther talked about it. And it, it, before God can recreate a new creation in you, he has to first of all destroy who you think you were. Isaiah is a good example of that. Isaiah chapter 6. Before God can use Isaiah, God, God brings him by a vision into heaven so he can see the throne of God. Now, Isaiah is a righteous man. Isaiah is a holy man. Isaiah serves in the court of a king. Isaiah is highly educated. He's at the top of his profession. He is one of the most godly men in Israel among very few that are godly. And he is brought by a vision into heaven and he sees God on his throne. I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up and his train, the edge of his robe, filled the temple and his throne was surrounded by angels crying, holy, holy, holy. He saw God in his absolute holiness. This is in a vision. And he hit his face on the ground. And he said, woe is me. I am an unclean man of unclean lips. When he saw God for who God is in his holiness, then he could clearly see who he was in his own nature apart from God. And when he saw what he was really like, now he was in a place where God could begin to use him. And he told an angel to go take a coal off of the off of the altar of incense in heaven and to touch his tongue with it, to purify his tongue so now he could speak for a holy God, holy words. Peter, when Jesus appears to him, when Peter is fishing with his brother and they come back and Jesus uses his boat to, to preach a little bit, and when he's done, he says, this is Luke chapter 5, he says to Peter, he says, now go launch out in the deep and, and, and catch a, throw your nets out for a catch of fish. And Peter says, Rabbi, we, we've been out there all night and caught nothing. And this is kind of assumed. By the way, we're fishermen, and I think you're a carpenter. We know something about fishing, and you know about carving wood. You don't catch fish in the daytime. You catch them at night. And we were just there, and there are no fish. And he says, but nevertheless at your word, I will go cast a net. Jesus said nets. Peter's faith was for a net. And when he did, they caught such a load of fish that it almost sank the boat. And when they come ashore, Peter sees what's happened, and he looks at Jesus, and he falls on his knees and says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. We have to see who we really are inside apart from God. And that's what's got to happen before a real revival takes place. We'll talk about that a little bit on Sunday. So this is what God is doing here, but this is God that's orchestrating this. Okay. That was so exciting. Let's move on. In the end... God blesses Job with twice of what he lost. So God wasn't punishing Job. God was purifying Job. Now, there are other examples in the Bible of, well, God tests people. Genesis 22. Here's a man of faith. God chose him. And we, don't, we went several year, a year or so ago, we did a series on the steps of Abraham, of the faith of Abraham. 
and we went through how Abraham had to grow in test, grow in faith, and this is the ultimate test. So Abraham, when we, God first meets him, Abraham has no children. He's too old. He's, he's, he's 70 years old. His wife is 60 years old, and she's barren. And God says, you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham says, I don't even have an heir. I don't get the possibility of having an heir. And God says, no, there's going to be one born of you that will be your heir. Then Abraham goes, and when nothing happens over 10, 15 years, he and his wife cook up a plan so that she gives her servant to him to act as if she's his wife. She conceives and brings forth a son. They name him Ishmael. They present this son that they helped God produce to God and said, here's the son you promised. And God says, no, I'm not accepting him. This son is going to be born simply because you believe the promise I made, which is going to look impossible to you. So now... He's going through this. This son has been supernaturally born. This is the son God's told him, through this boy, you're going to be the father of many nations. And now one day, God, Abraham wakes up, and this is what God says to him. Now it came to pass after these things that God, oh what, tested Abraham and said to Abraham, he said, and said, here am I, verse 2. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Because what had happened by now, undoubtedly, is Abraham, until Isaac was born, all he could do was trust God's promise. But now he has the son of the promise. Now I can see how this promise might come to pass because I have the boy here and I can see him. It doesn't take faith now to believe that God's going to use this boy because I can now see him and I've become devoted to him. He has this special place in my heart and God says, I want him. What do you want me to do with him, Lord? Send him to school? No. I want you to go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. In other words, I want you to make a burnt sacrifice of him. The amazing thing is Abraham woke got up the next morning early, and it was a three-day journey they went on. I can't imagine what he went through through those three days. He gets to the bottom of the mountain. We've talked about this before. And he says to the servants, you stay here, and the lad and I are going to go up there, and we're going to worship God. And then he says, and we will return. So somehow he knew God was going to work this out. And in Hebrews 11, we see he believed that if necessary, God would raise him from the dead because God had promised him through that son, you're going to be the father of many nations. So God's not taking the son away from him. What God wants to do is do two things, I believe here. God wants to make sure that God is still first in his heart, not not Abraham's son. Because our children can become, take a place in our heart that belongs to God. Our grandchildren can take a place. Our spouse can take a place that belongs to God. Things can take a place belong to God. And God has said in a number of places, he is a jealous God. He's jealous for you. That's how much he loves you. He wants you for himself. He wants you to have a, a spouse. He wants you to have children. He wants you to, but he wants you first for himself. And he paid the dearest possible price so that he could have you. So let, let's go on with the story. Let's go down to verses um, uh, 16, excuse me, uh, 12. 
What we're going to see is now what's happened is Abraham obeys him, ties him up, builds the altar. He raises his hand up, and an angel speaks to him and says, Stop. Verse 12. And he said, Don't, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything for him, to him. For now I know you fear God. Not because I see it in your heart, but because you've acted it out. Faith without works is useless, James 2 says, and uses this as an example. Since you've withheld, not withheld your only son, your son, your only son from me. Now let's go down to verses um, uh, 16 and 8 through 18. And he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing. So what he's happened is God says, now I know what's in your heart. Now it wasn't that God didn't know it, it's he showed Abraham what was in it. He pulled it out because there's things inside of us that don't get hatched. They don't become real until we've acted them out, until they've been tested and we've proven what's really in our hearts. Relationships can get tested to the brink. There was a time in our marriage where it got tested, where, where we were this close to ending it. Not from her side, from my side. This close because of pressures and all kinds of things. And I can tell you right where I was. I said, God, that's it. And all of a sudden, God revealed my heart. And it broke my heart. And I said, I can't do that. I made a vow to you, and I made a vow to her. And, if I, and I can't break that vow, no matter what it costs me, I cannot break that vow. And that became a major turnaround in our life. And this is what was happening here. It was tested. Now look at the result of his test. Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. This is the same thing God said to him back in Genesis 15. But now the, 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 it can be released God's power and blessing that he promised can now be released because Abraham passed the test. Oh, by the way, one of the results of Abraham's passing the test under the terms of the covenant that God had with him, and I don't have time to go into that now, now God was duty-bound by a covenant because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son because God demanded it. God is now duty-bound to sacrifice his only son, whom he loves. And by the way, the hill on which God's son was sacrificed is this same hill. So Abraham's obedience is, has a direct effect on my salvation and your salvation. This is the blessing that came about because Abraham was tested and passed the test. Now God tested him only when his faith was at a place where God knew he could pass the test. God didn't do this to him when he first made the promise. God knows what you're capable of. And parents, when you test your children, when you do things with them, you need to have good judgment about whether they're capable of doing what you're requiring of them or not. So when you've got a two-year-old and you're expecting the same thing of them that you do your 18-year-old, that's not fair. You need to adjust what you're expecting to what you know they're capable of doing, and their capability can vary with different children. This is why it's important to know them, but that's another whole teaching 
which we don't have time to do tonight. Okay. So that's, that's Abraham. Let's go to Luke 22. Let's look at somebody else God tested. Very similar to Job. So what's happened now is, is Jesus is announcing, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's announcing to them what, what he's about to do. And now he announces this wonderful revelation to Peter. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. This sounds like Job, doesn't it? Satan is asking permission to test you, to see what's really in you, to sift you as wheat. Well, we don't do that really anymore. But what they would do back then is when you, when you, when you harvested the grain, you would get the kernels of grain along with the shaft and the, and the other things, the chaff it's called, was with it. So how would they separate it out? Well, one of the ways they would do is they would take a fork called the winnowing fork. Remember John the Baptist said there's coming one and he will have a winnowing fork in his hand? And what they would do is they would take the pile of grain and they would throw it up in the air and the wind would blow the chaff away and the true seeds would, what would remain is the seeds. that will, So it's a separating process. So Satan has, has asked permission to sift you, to separate out from you what's chaff, what's you, what's flesh, from what's really God in your heart. And let's see how well Peter received this and cooperated with this. But notice, and I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. So it's not as if Jesus has just released Satan in his life and said, have at it. Remember, God didn't just do that either. He said, but don't touch him. You can't have his life. But I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I Go back a second to verse 32. Today I discovered something. When he said, I prayed for you, that word you is plural. So he's not just talking about Peter, because Peter's going to have a real crisis, but they all fell away. They all got afraid. They all scattered. In fact, in one of the other gospel versions, he talks about this. So I prayed for you that you may strengthen your brethren. And he said to them, the Lord just said to them what's going to happen. And Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. This is what Peter thought was in his heart. And this is what Peter was confident, more than any of the rest of them, that his intentions were. Peter was supremely confident. Remember, Peter's the one that Jesus said, flesh and Peter, God used Peter to speak out, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father's in heaven. And that wonderful moment lasts for a couple of verses until Jesus said, and I've got to go to Jerusalem and suffer. And Peter says, no, you can't do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So the same sensitivity that Peter had to hear the voice of God, he also had the same sensitivity to hear the voice of Satan, and he didn't have the spiritual maturity to discern the difference. Why? Because there was still too much of Peter in Peter. So he was very susceptible. Oh, this is a... Oh. See, when you still got some of you motivating, 
When you still got some of you trying to prove something about how spiritual you are, when you still got insecurity and ministry is trying to fill that spot that only God can fill, then you are vulnerable to Satan because he knows just how to appeal to your ego. And it's called pride. And the reason pride is so dangerous is because pride blinds you because you know you're right because you can't discern anymore because it's now got to hook in the part of you that's still you and that's where Peter was and Jesus is basically I can't use you in ministry until you go through this test and you come out the other side but I prayed for you I prayed you through this but you still have to go through it the pain of it Lord I'll go with you both to prison and to death keep going And he said, I tell you, Peter, I wonder what this sounded like. The rooster shall not crow this day before you've denied me three times that you even know me. And Peter didn't receive that. So let's go down to uh, verse uh, 60. You have that? I don't think I made it bold. Can you find verse 60, Luke twenty-two sixty? 60? I didn't get the bold all the way through it. But it says basically, oh, here we go. So what's happened? Jesus arrested, and Peter, because he's curious, he comes down, and while Jesus is in being examined, he's in the outer court. There's a fire there at night. He's trying to stay warm. And what happens is they start talking, and, and, and uh, some a woman, a little, actually it was a servant girl, says to him, aren't you one of his disciples? And he says, man, I don't even know what you're saying. This was the third time. And immediately while he was still speaking, he's already denied him twice. This is the third time. Uh, the rooster crowed. And the, the, Luke's version is so powerful. It says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I often imagine what that must have been like. Jeez, Peter's so full of his confidence. And he knows he's denied him two times. And now the third time, and he denies him, he hears the cock crow. He said, and now Jesus' words have got to have come back to him. And he realizes what he's done. And he turns, and whatever's going on with Jesus, Jesus turns, and I can't imagine what was in his eyes. And he looks at Peter right through Peter. This is breaking Peter's pride. Peter now sees what he was capable of. He sees how deceived he was about himself that Jesus knew all along. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. The next verse. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. James talks about being double-minded and we think we're somewhere. And he's talking about going through trials and we find out that we're really double-minded. We really have one foot in the world and one foot in church and with God. And then he said what you should do is, is when you discover this, throw your joy and your laughter out and you need to cry. You need to mourn. You need to have really broken inside. This is God breaking down our pride and wept bitterly. But that's not the end of the story. This is preparation 
for something far more powerful. In John 21, Jesus restores Peter. They're not going to put it up there. Famous story, Jesus is on the, they're out fishing, they're back up in Galilee. Jesus is on the shore cooking breakfast. And they come along and Peter recognizes him and says, I think it's the Lord. Takes his outer garment, jumps in the water, swims ashore. Nobody dares ask him who he is, although they know it. And he, he feeds them breakfast. And then he says, Peter, come here. They start walking down the beach. And Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you, do you still love me more than these? I've read all kinds of commentaries on what the these are. Many of them speculate than, than fishing. But I really believe he's talking about these other disciples because Peter was confident he loved Jesus more than the rest of the disciples did. And I think Jesus is asking Peter, do you still think you love me more than the rest of these do? And the word that Jesus uses for love there is the Greek word agape, which means the God kind of love. Do you still think you love me with that sacrificial love? And Peter says, no, Lord, I phileo you. That's the Greek word for friendship. I have fond affection for you, but I, don't, I know I don't love you with that sacrificial love. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Then Jesus said a second, do you still say you love me, agape, more than the rest of these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know me. I phileo you. I have fond feelings towards you. And he says, feed my lambs. And then the third time Jesus says to him, and this time Jesus comes down to where he is. He says, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you have fond feelings to me? And Jesus says, Peter says, yes, you know. He says, then feed my sheep. Each time Jesus is restoring one of the times he denied him. And each time he restores it, he recommissions him to feed his sheep. And then he goes on to tell him that you're going to live a long life and when you die, you're going to be sacrificed the way I'm sacrificed. And then Peter's still struggling, says, because John was following, says, well, what about him? <laughs> he, still, he still can't just keep his eyes on Jesus. Well, what, what, what about him? This is the guy that used to lie with his head on your chest. What about him? And Peter, Jesus' answer, you got to see, I think I read between the lines. Jesus says, what of him? In other words, it's not your business what I do with him. What, what if he lives until I come back? And it goes on, that's not what Jesus was promising, but he's asking Peter, so what if I keep him around until I come back? What is it to you? You do what I set you here to do. So Jesus is restoring him from his failures. And Jesus is now, this is a purifying process. Because the next time we see Peter, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, with a boldness to stand before the very people that that crucified Christ and tell him they crucified the Messiah. There's a boldness in him that never would have come if Peter hadn't been broken inside of him. Job would never have come to that place if without that pressure he didn't discover what was in him and it was broken in him. I've got to move on quickly here. So, well, that's them. But Matthew chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus went through a testing. Right before this, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John, and the Spirit descends like a bodily form, like a dove. He is filled with the Spirit. Then Jesus, filled with the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to get some instruction. No, 
to be tempted, tested by the devil. Now, why in the world would... I understand Peter needs to be tested. I understand, but why would Jesus need to be tested? Because God is now wearing flesh. And flesh is susceptible to temptation. His body was different than ours because yours and mine had a bent. If you do nothing with your body, it will go towards the temptation. Jesus' was not like that, but it was susceptible. In Hebrews 4, it says he was tempted in all ways, such as we are, without sin. So he had to be susceptible to temptation, or it wouldn't have been a real temptation. So he's now got to have this, he's got to now be tested in exercising his control over this flesh that he's now wearing, and he's doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit in him, not by the fact that he's the Son of God. So there's three tests he goes through. The first one is after he's not eaten food for 40 days, Satan comes to test him, his appetite, and he'll do that with you. He says, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. So he's tempting his need of his body to feed his body, and Jesus goes back to the Word. It's written... Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus is exercising his will to say, no, I'm not going to yield to my flesh. I'm going to yield to God's word. God's word is a higher authority than me, than the appetite of my body after 40 days of not eating. Then Satan tests, tempts him, takes him up on a hill and says, if, jump off, because it says that if you jump off, angels will, get, will keep you up unless you strap, be, be, hit your foot and dash your foot against the stone. And he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You will not test him. So Satan was tempting him to presume on the promises of God. So I've never taught it this way before. Jesus answers the first one by saying, no, I'll obey the word before I'll obey my flesh. Now Satan says, okay, if you're going to obey the word, the word says if you jump off here, God will protect you. No, I'm not going to use the word to test God. I'm going to trust God's word. And then the third test is he takes him up on a hill, shows him all the, 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 the earth, and Satan's the God of this earth. And he says, if you just bow your knee and worship me, I will give to you what you came to buy back by sacrificing yourself on that cross. So now he's tempted to short-circuit He's tempted to have the ends justify the means. To say, well, I, as, long as, I, as long as I get the kingdom of God back for God, it doesn't matter how I do it. No, this was obedience to do it God's way. But Jesus was tested by Satan. And then we don't have it up there. And then it goes on to say, and he returned in the power of the Spirit. He was led by the spirit to be tested and when he passed the test he returns in the power of the spirit peter wanted to flow in the power of god but god couldn't trust him until he come through the test and failed it and then been restored and been made right inside until peter had to die to himself Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Though he was a son, 
yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered or went through. He was a son, but the only way you learn how to obey is by obeying. Thinking about it, promising it, pledging it, crying over it, confessing it, isn't obeying. The only way obedience is obedience is when you actually obey. And Jesus had to learn to do that. I want to close by a section of scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. I know they're going to have it up there, but I want to go through it kind of. The book of Hebrews is really a book of correction where the Spirit of God is correcting Jewish believers that because they have been, through persecution, have been driven out of Jerusalem and they're now out in the fringes of the, of the Christian world and they do not have a, a regular contact with the mother church. So it's kind of like COVID, all right? They can't come to church and they didn't have online streaming or anything like that. They just had letters that went back and forth. So they were beginning to drift away and there were other teachings that were coming in to, to water down their faith in Christ. So most of this book is written to address those, those issues. And, and so chapter 12 is basically summarizing what God is doing with them. And it starts out by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us shout hallelujah, jump up and down, and run around church. No, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run, here's that word again, with endurance, the race that's set before us. And let us finish what God has put us here to do. And how are we to do that? Looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what he's saying here is, is if you get discouraged about what you're going through, look at what Jesus went through for you. He was rejected. He was despised. He was, he was beaten. He was spit upon. And then he was brutally executed for something he didn't do for something we did. So keep our eyes on him. Now get on to verse 5. He's going to talk about how to receive the correction. Have you forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as sons? So what he's saying here is God is dealing with you for whatever it is you're going through. Remember, God's dealing with you as his son, as his child. So he's not punishing you. He's not angry at you. But as a father, he wants to bring out the best that you knew. He wants to conform you to the image of his son. Have you forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. Next verse. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now go back to verse 5. He's talking here about how do you respond to whatever God's doing in your life through whatever you're going through. And he talks about several ways to respond, two ways, and both of these are wrong. My son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. The word chastening there is a word that means training, disciplining. 
Don't despise. So despise it is to reject it. And there are a number of ways we can do that. By just denying it, refusing to listen to it, arguing with it, getting stiff-necked as the Hebrews did, and just refusing to, to be refusing to change, refusing to look at anything. Or uh, do not be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. That's called fainting. And I was talking to somebody today, and they reminded me of a story I used to tell of uh, Pastor Chris when he was younger. We had he always wanted a, 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 a masculine, big man's dog. So we got a German, what we thought was a German shepherd for him, it was a cross between a German shepherd and a collie, and I think it was more Chihuahua, because this was the biggest baby you ever saw. And he was uncontrollable, so we, we hired a, a dog trainer to come out and teach my son how to train the dog. And so we would bring his name was King. Big, this King was, and we'd bring him over, and he'd sit there, and we'd say, King, sit! King would just kind of, Oh, you're going to kill me. I can't do that. Oh! And the trainer comes over and says, he's manipulating you. He's trying to convince you there's no, you're going to destroy him by being firm with him and giving him a command. Watch this difference. So the trainer comes over and says, King, set! King, go like this. And the king went like this. He says, he can do it. He's just trying to control you. So we try to get out from underneath God's training by fainting. Oh, I'm so discouraged. I'm never going to make it. And we open this big pity party, and what we're doing is we're avoiding God's correction. So we're going to stay in it longer. Nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. Verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines, trains. He does it because he loves us. And, and scourges every son he receives. Now, I've studied out that word scourge because I've said it's got to mean something other than what Jesus went through. And I've got to tell you, the word is mastigo, and what it means is to be beaten by a stick. That's what they did to him. They beat him with sticks before they nailed him to a cross. It means to be spanked. <laughs> And so there are different levels. I didn't have time to get into it, but back in Job's, Elihu, the young man, talks about different ways God corrects us, and they're increasing levels of pressure. He corrects us, first of all, by the Word. And if the Word doesn't correct us, then God begins to lead us into situations or allow situations that are alive that begin to put emotional pressure on you. And if ultimately that doesn't work, physical things can happen to you. And in... 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about that. Talks at one point about disciplining somebody by turning them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that their soul will be saved. So God will go to that degree if he has to, to bring you back. Okay, we've got to go on. Verse 7. This is so important. If you endure chastening, then God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not chasten? Say there a second. In the Hebrew, that's a little, in the, in the Greek, it's a little bit hard, but what it really is saying is this. If you endure chastening, you will allow God to treat you as a son. If you fight it, then you're not allowing God to do the work in you that he wants to do. So it goes back to what we talked about, enduring it. 
if you endure the chastening, if you go through it, if you, if you allow God to bring you through this process, whatever you're going through, then you're allowing him as a father that loves you to do the training in you that he wants to do. Those of you who've ever been through basic training know what I'm talking about. Okay, keep going. But if you are without chastening, of which we've all become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. So because God is a father, he will not leave you where you are. Verse 9. Furthermore, we've had human fathers that corrected us. Well, that's in the old days, not so much anymore. And we paid them respect. Shall we not be much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Keep going. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, look at this, for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. God's goal is to produce in you and me his holiness. What does holiness mean? It means completely his, wholly his. It's like Jesus said, I only say what I hear my father say, and I only do what I see my father do. In other words, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. With most of us, if we've seen us, maybe a few minutes during the week we saw Jesus, but the rest of the time we saw us. Why? There's still so much of us controlling us and so little of him that's in control. Aren't you God glad the Bible says it's God that's at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure? Let's keep going. Now, no chastening seems joyful for the present, asked Job, but painful. So there's no way there's not going to be pain. I told you, this is a high school, college class tonight. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit. Oh, it's just so rich. The peaceable fruit of righteousness. In this day and age, so many people are looking for peace. And there's only one place you're going to find peace, and that's in complete surrender to Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know what wears us down? You know what this heavy burden we carry is? It's not the news that's on CNN or Fox it's not our budget. It's not the economy. It's not what weighs us down is the burden of self. It's a heavy burden. And Jesus says, Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. What are we supposed to learn of him? For I am meek and lowly. And heart. Jesus never did anything for himself. He never reacted, responded, interpreted anything about himself. This is why he could stand there and they could make all these accusations at him. They could spit at him. They could do everything to him. And, and he could hang on that cross with everything, mocking him, saying, if you're the son of God, come down off the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The only way he could have done that is he was already dead to self before they ever arrested him. And the final nail in his coffin of himself was in the garden 
when three times he had to pray through, Father, not my will, but your will be done. The peaceable fruit of righteousness when we've been trained by it. And you can't do this to yourself. All you can do is allow the Spirit of God to do this work in you. And Jesus did it this way. When he called his disciples, he said, come and follow me. But somewhere along the line, he changed the terms. In the beginning, it was just leave everything and follow me. But somewhere along the line, he changed the terms. He said, if you're going to be my disciple, then here's what you've got to do. You've got to deny self. You've got to take up your cross, and then you can follow me. Paul's prayer in Philippians 3 was that, that, that uh, you know, I've, I've suffered a loss of all things so that I may know him and be found in him having a righteousness not of my own, but a righteousness which comes by faith, from God by faith in Christ, and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his suffering that I may be conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection of the dead. We want the power of the resurrection in our life, but that only comes when there's been a death. And it's a death to self. And it's a daily fight. And the way we learn, we pick up that cross is when something happens and you want to strike back and the Spirit of God reminds you, ooh, that's about you. When you're discouraged, when you're upset, it's almost always because it's something about you. When we're discouraged, it's because we don't think we're where we should be. That's the opposite of Peter, who thought he was where he should be. But it's still about me. Oswald Chambers says, discouragement is nothing more than disenchanted self-love. Think about that. I'm discouraged about myself. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. It's all about how I'm doing, how I'm performing, how good am I doing or how bad I'm doing. And even the way we do things for one another is very often because it reflects on whether we're a good Christian or not. It's still about, I'm telling you, the root of self is so deep down in our human nature that only the Spirit of God, only the Spirit of God can dig it out. And he doesn't dig it out in a classroom. He, doesn't dig it, he digs it out on your face in prayer, but he often digs it out through the trials that we go through when he has to show us. So you really thought you were somewhere... John, and look what's still in you. And then when we repent, now he can begin to set us free. Oh, what an exciting message this was. <laughs> but it's the truth. God is calling us. He's calling us. He's calling us to be holy. We can't do it in ourselves. But if you don't, if you're con- if we're com- confident in where we are, if we're comfortable where we are, we're like those marshes we talked about on Sunday. We begin to stagnate, and we don't know we're stagnating because we're all looking at one another, saying, "Aren't we doing well?" It's the Laodicean, Laodicean church, lukewarm. Jesus said, "I'd rather have you cold than lukewarm. I'll spit you out of my mouth." That's not the word he used. We better pray, Father. We just This is your word. Help us to receive this tonight. 
most of all, help us to receive that you, you, you correct us, you test us, you challenge us, because you love us. You know who you put in us. You know what you put in us. And you want to bring out this fruit of Christ, the image of Christ, that we may talk and act and speak like the body of the one who you sent to this earth for us. So help us in whatever, whoever's watching tonight, whoever's here tonight, whatever they may personally be going through or have gone through or may be facing that they don't even know. Help us to do what your word just said. Help us to learn to endure, trusting you, looking to learn what is it you want to show me, what is it I need to see, and to just relax and trust you to do the work in us that only you can do. If any of you have ever had surgery, there comes a point where they put you on the table. They've got the needle in you, and they give an injection in there. And at some point along the way, you've got to trust yourself to them and let them do the work in you that only they can do. And one of the reasons they put you out is so you don't get in their way, so you don't try to help them out. They want you out of the picture so they can do the work in you. God needs to train us to get out of the way so that he complete the work that he's begun in us. Praise the Lord.